How cool is it that the song we just sang was written by Matt Theme? He wrote that song. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? That was great. You never know what the Lord's just going to bubble up and pour out uh, upon us. So thank you for that. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are more than enough, that you are the God of the overflow. And we gather here to thank you, to remember who you are, what you're about, and how you do things. And we pray that you would turn our minds, our eyes, our focus back to you this morning. That as the things of the world uh, rage on, may they grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And all who agree, say, Amen. Uh, today, uh, we're going to read the 23rd Psalm um, together. It, it's only six verses, um, but this is one of those scriptures that I would recommend that you begin to memorize. Many of you may already know it by memory. You just don't know that you know it. Um, but this is uh, a great vision of what life is like with Jesus as our great shepherd. Let's share in God's good word together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. unafraid. Are you living unafraid? Are you living at peace? Uh, Are you able to sleep at night, just go right on to bed and wake up uh, in joy? Uh, It is a real challenge these days for many folks. So we are in this sermon series. I'm so grateful that the Lord would lead us to this series at this time. And, And what we find out is that financial fear is one of the fears that we have. Uh, and we're going to look today at how we overcome that and how God has a plan for that in our lives as laid out in Scripture. Um, but if you are like me, it has been a long week. It has been a really long week about lots of things uh, that can be kind of scary. And so I thought today it might be helpful to us just as a centering exercise for us to all kind of get on the same page that we would pray for one another. We would pray for God uh, to be with us and that we would do that together. So let's, let's say this opening prayer together. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful to you that you have said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We are thankful for the ease with which you walked upon this earth, the generosity and kindness you showed to people, the devotion with which you cared for those who were out of the way and in trouble, the extent to which you even loved your enemies and laid down your life for them. We are so thankful to believe that this is a life for us, a life without lack a life of sufficiency. Lord, slip up on us today. Get past our defenses, our worries, our concerns. Gently open our souls and speak your word into them. 
We believe you want to do it, and we wait for you to do it now. In your name, amen. Amen. That's my prayer for us, that the Lord just slip up on us somewhere today and lead you into life everlasting, life anew, life today. Well, we're in this series, um, and it's influenced by a book by Reverend Adam Hamilton. Uh, It is our flagship United Methodist Church up outside Kansas City in Leewood, Kansas. Uh, I love Adam. He's been a great mentor uh, for me and for our church. We do much much of our training up there. And one of the reasons I love Church of the Resurrection is because culturally it's very similar. Um, It's an upwardly mobile suburban area outside of Kansas City. Uh, Adam and I went to uh, the same seminary. Um, we kind of ran in the same circles. He's a little older than I am uh, and just doing amazing work. And so when he does things with his congregation, I really pay attention because it looks and sounds a lot like us. And I think, wow, I wonder if that's true for us. And when he surveyed 2,400 of his congregants uh, in this very nice middle America, upwardly mobile uh, place, he found that 80% of his congregants that, that he surveyed, 8 out of 10 Uh, said that they were living with moderate or significant levels of fear. I found that really interesting. We are the healthiest, wealthiest, longest-lived people in the history of our planet. And yet, I don't know, is it true for you? Are you you living with some fear in your life? Moderate to significant levels of fear that actually are, are changing your life a bit? I bet so if you're like most people. The American Psychological Association reports that this thing is the number one stress for Americans. Anybody know what it is? What do you fight about? Money. Yes. Isn't that interesting? So when people go to psychiatrists, um, you might say that they, you know, that they're really worried about, you know, seeing people or like crazy stuff. No, people are just worried about money. They're worried about money. They got money on their mind and their mind on their money. That's what they do. Right? I'm rapping today. I don't know why. Right? And what's interesting about this is that this is true not only for lower income people, but also for middle income people and perhaps surprisingly high income people. Even millionaires worry about financial security, uh, statistically proven. Uh, the Swiss financial firm, for example, UBS, they surveyed more than 600 investors who had a net worth of more than $5 million. I would think at $5 million, I'd be pretty happy. Of those multimillionaires who were millennials, the younger end of that spectrum, more than half of them, more than 50%, said that they were afraid of losing their wealth. That they've got $5 million and they're afraid of losing it. So rather than, you know, you know living on easy street and feeling good about it, they're really stuck. They're upset because they're afraid they're going to lose their wealth. So when the millionaires were asked about how much wealth do you aspire to eventually have, It's not really surprising. The wealthier the respondent was, the higher the reported financial goals. So those with a million dollars, they wanted $2 million. Surprisingly to me, those with $10 million felt like they needed $25 million. It actually was getting worse as they got more money. It wasn't getting better. Now, this should not surprise us because where our mind is, where our heart is, where our attention is, that's where we go. And if, and, if if you're not careful... Those same tracks that were in your head when you were 20 that said, if I only had $2,000 more, if I only had $5,000 more, if I only had $10,000 more, that never stops unless you intentionally turn it around. I mean, you just need to understand that, that you can get on that treadmill. And so it goes with all of us unless we choose to worship something other than money. Now, we don't like to say that out loud, but that's really what we're talking about, whether we worship money or not. Most people do in America. 
What seemed shocking to me was that millionaires, these millionaires reported that they felt stuck on a treadmill. They had $5 million and they felt like if they stopped doing what they're doing, their life would be over in pretty short order. I would like to try that treadmill. Maybe just for a day. But it really does sound terrible, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how much you make. It doesn't matter how many millions you have. You can feel stuck on a treadmill. This is not a new problem. It's not unique to Edmond. It's not unique to Kansas City or Leewood. It's not unique to America. It's not unique to our time. Maybe some of you all um, knew of this book or you had it read to you when you were a child. I did. Any, any of you all know what this is? The people under 40 are looking at me like, no, I don't know what that is. It's a book. You open them. They have pictures. Check them out. Yes, for all the young people. Okay. So in Henny Penny, that's the name. Say Henny Penny with me. Henny Penny. There she is. Uh, We have an American version uh, called Chicken Little. Um, But this has been around a long, long time. This is Henny Penny. She goes out to the garden and, and she's clucking around. And there's an acorn. It falls on her head. But rather than saying maybe I should move from underneath the oak tree, you know what she says? Yes, the sky is falling. You do know this story. I must go and tell the king. And so she gets up in this lather just all excited and and can't believe it. She's panicking. And so the first person she comes across is a rooster named Cocky Locky. Yeah. So Henny Penny goes to Cocky Locky and he goes, what's going on? She says, I'm going to the king because the sky is falling. He goes, it is. She goes, yes, it is. He goes, oh, my goodness, we better go tell the king. So they go together. As the story goes, everybody's got a really cool name. The next person they come across is Ducky Lucky. So Ducky Lucky, Cocky Lucky, and Henny Penny, they go to tell the king because they're panicked. They run off. And you know who they see next? Can you guess? Do you know? Some of you do. It's Goosey Lucy. Goosey Goosey Lucy, Ducky Lucky, Cocky Lucky, and Henny Penny, they go to see the king. They're all freaked out. They're very upset. They come to my favorite, Turkey Lurkey. Right? So it's... Turkey Lurkey, Goosey Lucy, Ducky Lucky, Cocky Lucky, Henny Penny. They're running. They're excited. They're upset. And then they come to Foxy Loxy. Now, friends, this is an important allegory because when you get panicked, you get other people panicked around you, there's always a Foxy Loxy waiting to take your money, to take your life, to eat your life. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Foxy Loxy says what all Foxy Loxy say, everybody at Renaissance Center, right? Oh, do I have a deal for you? I can make this work. I've got a shortcut to the king. Follow me. They do. They actually follow Foxy Loxy into Foxy Loxy's cave. And the book says, from that day to this, Turkey Lurkey, Goosey Lucy, Ducky Lucky, Cocky Locky, and Henny Penny have never been seen again. Fear will eat you alive. It will take your life. It will steal your joy. It can end you. That's the reality of fear. That's why we preach on it. That's why we teach on it. That's why Jesus says over and over again. That's why the angels say over and over again. That's why God says over and over again, do not be what? Afraid. This story, friends, has been around for more than 2,000 years in some iteration, in some form. And it's still true today, isn't it? That's true. We can learn from Henny Penny. We can learn from the good words of God. If we're not careful, when we look on our phone or we turn on the TV and and we see missile strikes headed to Syria, we can say the sky is falling, right? Because the sky is falling. 
for my military friends, this is a very scary thing that's happening. I mean, very real. I'm, I'm not checking my brains at the door. Uh, you know, it's a very hard week for me to stand up here and tell you not to be afraid when this is what you see day after day. People have said, on Friday the 13th, the world's going to end. It's going to be World War III. This is going to be the end of us. See what's happening in Syria? They're using chemical attacks. All this stuff, right? And, and, you, say, and you might be able to step back from that and go, okay, wait, wait, wait. That's on the other side of the world. Oh, okay, okay. But if you're like me, you grew up in western Oklahoma. And Fairview, Thomas, Laverne. These places where, you know, I used to go play football, used to play basketball. Their entire towns are evacuated because they're not sure if that town's going to be there tomorrow because the wildfires are sweeping through. Right? Right? Okay. Now, before I get to this next piece, uh, I want you to understand that I understand that there may be some people in the room that this may be new information for, and for that I apologize. But for, for me particularly, and for our community of faith particularly, that fear can come home to us. We have a seven-year-old girl in our church that are friends with many of you all. You play on the same softball teams. You're in the same classes. She attends Prairie Vale right there. Beautiful young girl. She felt she had some flu-like symptoms. Her parents were checking on it. Her pediatrician says the blood work doesn't look right. I want you to go down to children's. And so they do. And they tell mom and dad, Thursday, your child has leukemia. It's going to be about a two-year process. The next 30 days are going to be rough. It's going to be very hard. But we have a 95% chance of doing really well. We have a really good protocol for this. You're in a really great place. Um, and Shannon, I don't know how you're standing up today, uh, having been there overnight, but I thank you for your ministry to this family. This is Audra Yarholer of our church. Uh, after her procedure... Um, and she's doing great. She's got a great attitude. Everybody talks about how awesome she is. And um, I've been with the family over the last three days. And um, uh, her mom, April, there on the left in the red shirt, she's 23 weeks pregnant. And they've got three girls. Amaya's the youngest, uh, and Addie, and then Audra's the oldest. And, and after the first full chemo treatment yesterday in her little pick line, um, they sent me this photo. Like, I'm doing good. They asked her if they wanted to start on Saturday or, or on Monday, and Audra goes, let's get going, ready to do this thing. Now, of course, at seven, she has no idea all of what that will entail, as, of course, no one else does either, really. But when I stand here and, and I have to tell you to be unafraid, I, I want you to understand that I understand that everybody here has gone through something this week. So I, let, let's just put that on the table, Okay. And it's to these things that Jesus said to his people in that day who were overrun by the Romans and to us today, do not be afraid, little flock. In the midst of missiles, in the midst of fire, in the midst of cancer, do not be afraid, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is. Sell your possessions then and give alms. Help other people. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes in and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, really where your treasure is, your heart will be also. It'll follow. Jesus says to all of these things and to you today and to me, do not be what? Afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You really don't. It's not that bad things aren't around. They are. Clearly they are. But you don't have to be afraid. My mentor, Dallas Willard, says it like this. One of our greatest needs today is for people to really see and really believe the things that they already profess to see and believe. We say Jesus is risen. We say there's new life in him. We say that the dead will rise, that we, our future is secure, that heaven has come to earth. Now we have to act like it. 
If we really want to live into this life where the Lord is our shepherd, then we have to let him lead. We have to let him be the shepherd. And it's possible for you, and we're going to get there in just a second. But before we do, I want to share with you three real traps of the world, particularly when it comes to money, the very number one stressor in most of our lives. And the first one is desire. Now, this is not new to you, I'm sure, but the problem with desire is something called hedonic adaptation. Simply put, it's mo' better, right? You either want more of it or you want it to be better, right? You eat some cake, it's awesome. What do you want? More cake, right? You drive a car, it's good. What do you want? A better car, a newer model, more bells and whistles, a better job, a better home, a better neighborhood, whatever it is. The problem is there's diminishing return, and you know this to be true. This is the problem with alcoholism. It's the problem with drug addiction. It's the problem with pornography. It's the problem with all of the things in our life, including what we buy. That what used to be absolutely great 10 years ago is no longer acceptable to us, simply because we're not getting our pleasurable hit by what we purchased. Think about this. In sort of the way you think romantically, um, most of us have some romantic notion about our first car or our first home or our first purse or our first this. That's because it was the first and it was great. And everyone after that is just not quite as good. You know, it should be. It costs more. It's better. I mean, it's worth more, but it just doesn't have the same emotional pull. That's just the way it is with humanity. Secondly, then, it's a lack of discipline. Many of us get in trouble financially or in other places in our life because we simply don't have a plan. So people come to me and they're fighting about money all the time. And I say, well, how are you doing on your budget? And they say, a budget? Where's your money going? What are you spending on eating out? Well, we eat out a lot. What, what do you spend? I don't know. What, what, what's your car payment? What's your house payment? A lot of folks are house poor. They were fine in one home. Their friends moved into another neighborhood. They tried to move next to their friends. They did, and now their life, as they used to know it, is over because they don't have any money because it's all in the home. And, of course, the less you make, the worse your interest rate because it's a higher risk for the banks, which makes it worse. And so a lot of folks are really caught in higher interest rates because they're trying to keep up with other folks, and it robs them of their very life. The average person, average earner, saves less than 5% of their income. That's a problem because sooner or later, most of us want to retire uh, at some point in our lives. And so, um, you know, most financial experts are going to tell you that you need to save 10% um, kind of throughout your life. And by the time you get to my age, when you're 50, that needs to be 15%. Problem is we now have people retiring with debt instead of savings and they're moving back in with their kids. And it's hard. It's really hard. There's a lot of stress there. So the average household credit card debt Right? The good news is half folks don't have credit card debt, but those who do, it's now more than $16,000 per household. And depending on the card, depending on the group, uh, you're in double digit, um, and they just keep double digit interest and they're taking the money. Now, some of you have avoided all this. You're feeling really good, but you're like me and you have kids in college. So student loan debt is at the highest point in all of history in our country. Uh, it used to be that when I went to school in the 80s, you could work, and I had lots of my uh, fraternity brothers at Farmhouse that did. We would work, um, or we'd be on scholarship, or both, and then we would basically eat by every semester, just kind of skid by. We'd, we'd earn it, we'd make it, we'd earn it, make. You can't do that anymore. The the money has just skyrocketed with tuition. It's not possible in the same way it was um, 20 years ago. However, money is cheap and easy to get. Parents can get loans, kids can get loans, and the average 
Loan debt now is $35,000 per student. And the job market is such that most of those students move home with $35,000 in debt. And then the stress is real. And the stress is on. Now, let me tell you a little thing about this. The thing that's really tricky about this is it doesn't have to be that way. But it used to be when I went to school, and maybe for some of you, we lived in squalor. It was terrible. Um, what, what OSU had in the 80s should have been condemned. It was terrible. Um, but we just thought that's what college kids did. Today, uh, when you go to college, you have a pool, you have a workout club, you have a veranda, you have your private room, you have all these things, and it costs a lot of money. Friends, we have college kids living in things that I still can't afford, Right? And, and, and there's this expectation that that's just the way it is. It doesn't have to be that way because it might rob you the next 20 years of your life. I know people in their 40s now still with student debt, really struggling just to get out from underneath it. We have to be really, really careful in these seasons. Adam says it this way. He says, there's nothing admirable or praiseworthy about spending more money than you make. It doesn't make you happy. It makes you a slave. And it could make you a slave for a very long time. And we just need to be honest about that. And then this is not in the book, um, but this is just for 20 years of ministry. Um, I've seen people that singly, when they were single, they had great finances. They were on top of it. And then they got married. And they were unwilling to have a hard conversation with their spouse. And their finances blew up. Uh, or they were unequally yoked financially. One took it, brought in a lot of debt. The other had no debt. And then they fought about it the next 20 years. This is a real problem of what I will call an emotional boundary. That when you were doing it for yourself, you were fine. But when you got married... It got wonky. A lot of people, after 10 years or so, they kind of get that cleaned up, and they're okay with that, and then they have kids. And to be fair, when your kids are little, it's not that big a deal. Cleats don't cost that much. Diapers aren't that expensive. But when those children get to be 25 or 30, and they need a car or they need a home, I've watched parents who had been fiscally responsible all these years lose their mind because they couldn't say no to their child and be on the edge of going to jail because they couldn't pay their taxes because they'd lost everything because they'd co-signed for things their kids defaulted on. And they couldn't believe it. They're like, oh, my kids would never do that. Yes, they will. They're kids. They will. So if that's you, I'm not trying to beat on you. I'm just warning everybody else, and I'm happy to talk to you, and we have financial peace and other things to help you get out of these things. But that's a real deal, friends, a real deal, where people are losing everything they've got because they won't hold an emotional boundary with their family members. So, one of the worst case scenarios that I've ever seen looks like this. I want you to listen really, really closely because I don't want this to happen to you. Hello? Honey? Uh, are you at the club? Yes. <laughs> I'm at the mall now and I found this beautiful leather coat. It's only a thousand. Can I get it? Well, sure, if you like it that much. Okay, um, I also stopped by the Mercedes dealership and saw the new model, you know, the one I really like. How liked. much? 120. Well, at that price, I want it with all the options. Great, oh, and, and one more thing, the house we wanted last year is back on the market. They're, they're asking 1.5. We'll make them an offer, but come in at uh, 1.4. <laughs> okay, I love you, baby. I love you too. Okay, bye. Um, does anybody know whose phone this is? <laughs> yeah. The world offers unexpected financial problems. God offers unexpected life. 
Life without lack, it's possible for you. Psalm 23 is what it looks like. It's God's design for a life without lack. It's actually very possible. Read it with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's possible, friends. But we have, to, we have to start here. And that is that the shepherd equals I'm not in charge. You're not in charge. I'm in the care of someone else, really. He's a good shepherd. The Lord is good how often? All the time and all the time. God is good, right? But we have to allow the Lord to be the Lord, to be our shepherd. And so if the Lord is my shepherd, the result is, read it with me, I shall not want. Really. Because the Lord's priorities are now our priorities. Jesus says it like this. Strive first for the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. If Jesus is first, you don't have to worry about the rest. He will provide it in the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons. Now, this is a quick six-verse exercise. Verse 2, read it with me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So what kind of sheep lies down in a green pasture? This guy. Oh, that's you. You're a baby sheep. Look how much green grass you have all around you. There's no way to eat all that grass. There's no way. You see, God works from the overflow. And and the point is that a satisfied sheep lies down in green pasture. Right? It's green pasture. You would expect the, the scripture to read, there's green pasture and the sheep is gobbling it up before someone else gets it. No. The Lord is my shepherd. He is good. I shall not want. He allows me because I'm satisfied to lie down in a green pasture full of food around me, but I don't need to eat it because I'm good. I'm restored. My soul is restored. Read verse three with me. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. When we are right with God, we walk in harmony with God. We don't have to you know, sweat and toil and, and go out and try to get things and, and, and hustle for our worth. We're able to simply lie down in green pastures and have our soul restored. Now, that doesn't mean that bad things don't happen. They certainly do. We've seen them this week. So verse 4, read it with me. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Absolutely. Now, notice that it doesn't say if there happens to be a dark valley. Oh, there are dark valleys. It's just a matter of time before it comes to your home. Everybody walks through it. There's no one who's exempt. But even though we walk through the darkest valley and we do it together as community, not alone, community, we don't have to fear evil. Evil's real, but we don't have to fear it. Why? Because God's with us, for you're with me. Dallas says it like this. You can live without fear even in the midst of a world dominated by fear. You can. Fear's real, but you don't have to be owned by it. How do you do it? Read it with me. For you are with me. Say it again. For you are with me. One more time. For you are with me. That's the point. That when God is in control, when God is shepherd, we can relax, we can be at peace because God is with us. Uh, Verse 5, read it with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. Now today, what that would look like uh, is hot showers, warm fluffy towels, awesome pillows, things that make us feel clean, comfortable, and special. God's interested in all of us having a really great life. He really is. But he's got to be in charge. And that includes everything, including clothes and home and joyful experiences. Notice what the scripture does and doesn't say. Uh, Which of these cups is full? Well, if you're talking to a two-year-old, even the left one. right? Well, that's full enough for you. You don't want to spill. But notice that is not what the scripture says. Does Does the scripture say, my cup is full? 
No, what's it say? My cup, what? Overflows. There's a difference, isn't there? It's a big difference. There's more than enough for you, more than enough for your family, more than enough for you to share. Because God is a God of overflow. You have more than enough. God's provision is so great, in fact, that you can even feed your enemies. He says, he lays out a table before mine enemies and he anoints my head with oil. That that in that day there was more than enough even for those who would persecute you. And here's where heaven comes. When you love your enemies, like Jesus tells us to, they then become our friends. And then there's peace on earth. But it's not until we share out of God's overflow with others that that becomes a possibility. When we stingy and we hoard and we pull back and we get away from the table, we say, get away from me, then you've got real problems around the table. This vision is one where God is so great and so powerful, you can even feed your enemies. And the final verse is this. Read it with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Yes, my whole life long, forever and ever. Amen. This is a description of eternal life available to us now. And we remind ourselves that eternal life, real eternal life, is life lived out in the very presence of God. In the presence of Almighty God right now, today, and forever. Forever. So Paul writes to the early church in Philippi like this. Don't worry about what? Anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, this is one of those if-then geometry statements. Right? So if... We're not worrying about anything. And in everything by prayer and supplication, we're letting God know what we need. Then what happens? Then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, something the world does not and cannot know without Jesus, that peace will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Even in the hospital room. Even with the flames looking at your doors. God is still with us. God is moving. God will provide. God will take care of you. You don't have to be afraid. You really don't. Let God be God. Take the next step with him. So, uh, in case this is all kind of too ethereal, like, wow, I never even saw that coming. I didn't know the 23rd Psalm meant that. Um, I'm going to give you um, a few steps here to live out uh, just to help you. I also recommend the book called Life Without Lack by Dallas Willard. Um, He takes an entire book to explicate um, Psalm 23. I recommend it to you. So, your action steps for this week. Develop and use what, friends? A budget, for real. you got to know what's going on. You use your noodle. God gave it to you for a reason. Like, know, know where your finances are, what's going on. Secondly, avoid debt. Now, for my financial peace friends, uh, Dave Ramsey is going to say, avoid all debt all the time, pay cash only. I think that is a good um, teaching universally. Uh, but to be fair in Edmund, I don't know that that works exactly. And this is why. Most of us can't pay cash for a house. We're, we're going to need to have some debt on our house. Um, Chantel and I do we're I think four years out um, from being done with that Um, but you know we know what that is and and we do that secondly um, I want you to know that I came from a home where we paid cash for cars we did but I also know um, that that's not possible for everyone Uh, I went to college with a 12 speed bike Uh, our youngest Noah went to school with his feet like when he wants to come home we go get him because it's a lot cheaper for us to spend 40 bucks in gas and drive to Wichita than it is to pay a $400 car payment. Make sense? I mean, so, so I'm, not, I'm not talking crazy. But if it's you and you can't get to work, if you don't have a vehicle, you know, a bicycle won't get you to downtown fast enough, then maybe you need to buy a car. 
You don't need to buy a new car. You need to buy grandma's car, right? That costs you 500 bucks or $1,000. And, and then pay it back to grandma as fast as you can so you can get to work and hold the job. Does it make sense? The different, you're, you're not losing your mind. And education. But again, it's not living the vida loca in, in your penthouse, you know, with a $20,000 payment every year. It's like, look, I need $3,000 to pay my extra tuition that I can't cover this semester. Okay. And then you pay that back quickly. See the difference? It's wildly different. Thirdly, live well below your means. Live well below your means. Um, Adam in his book says, live two steps below your means. Andy and I have no idea what that means. So, um, so for us, and let me say it this way. If your realtor tells you you can afford a $300,000 home, buy a $150,000 home. And go out to dinner. Have somebody watch your kids. Have a life. Right? Don't, don't kill yourself. Uh, people say this to young people all the time. Oh, stretch yourself. You'll thank me for it later. No, they won't. They will hate you for it. I'm still mad at some people in my life about that one when we bought our first home here. It was terrible. It was terrible. And we felt like we couldn't do anything. So, so let me ask you this. What would this look like if you lived well below your means? You already know the answer. It looked like less anxiety, less stress, less financial fear, more hope, more financial freedom. So these are not going to surprise you because you're in church. But really, give away 10% of your income. Seriously, it's important. Because if you hoard it and use it and, and use it all, then that's where your life is and you'll lose it. And you could be a millionaire and you're still worried about losing it. That's just where your life is. It's not until you start giving it away and doing other things with the money that God has given you that you start to experience freedom. It's for your freedom, friends. You just need to understand that. It's for your freedom. And then also, um, five, save at least 10% of your income for your future because you're going to need it. Most of us don't want to work till the very last day of our life. We'd like to do some other things. If that's going to be the case, then you have to have a plan for that. You just do. Most of the people that I know of, maybe all the people that I know of, that live on 80% or less of their income are very happy, peaceful people. They start. They're, if they lose their job, they don't care. They've got savings. They'll find another job in three or six months or they'll make it to retirement because they've saved. And they know what their life's about. And they know that God's got them. And then finally, I've never asked you to do this before, but I'm going to ask you today because it, it'll change your life. You can take your sermon notes um, and not the stuff that I've been talking to you. If you'll just take the scripture and put it on your bathroom mirror or put it in your closet or put it somewhere where you'll see it every day, maybe the fridge, whatever it is, just begin to memorize that and have it in your life. The Lord is my, say it with me, shepherd, I shall not. You've already memorized verse one, right? There's only six of them. You can do it. You can do it. I know Methodists, we're not the big Bible memorization people. This is a good one. You learn this one. So then when you become afraid or somebody else in your family is afraid, you can say to yourself, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? In green pastures. He restores my soul. So with that, let's close in prayer together. If you'll read this prayer with me. Dear God, today is a new day. We sense your presence with us, loving us forward into your kingdom way of life. Yes, today is a new day, even if it is still dark and cloudy. Show us your face. Fill up the space that is yet still afraid in me. Our world needs you. My world needs you. Come, Lord Jesus. We can't escape being afraid without you right now. Take over and be Lord, Savior, friend, and shepherd once again in our lives. We invite you right now, Jesus, to take over and teach us to pray again. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.